0: For our sermon text this morning, I invite you to turn with me in God's holy word to the gospel according to John, the gospel according to John. This morning we will be in the 12th chapter, looking at verses 12 through 19. The gospel according to John, chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. This is the word of the living God written for you and for me. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, "'Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel!' The crowd, this is a different crowd, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd, this is the crowd that ran out to meet Jesus, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you are gaining nothing, look, the world, has gone after him. Let us pray. The Lord, I ask that you would sustain my voice, and that through your word we would hear your voice. Open our ears, O Lord God, to hear what the Spirit has to say to the church today. And would your blessing be upon it for the building up of us. Until that blessed day when we come into your kingdom. Through Christ our Lord and Savior we pray. Amen. We come this morning to the turning point in John's gospel. The first half of John's gospel has been called by scholars the book of signs. Where Jesus performs miracles that according to the Old Testament indicated that the Messiah had come, and therefore the people should listen to his teaching. Jesus begins with turning the water into wine, his first miracle at the wedding in Cana, and his miracles continue to grow and escalate. They, They crescendo up into John 11, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And other than himself, this is the only resurrection from the dead In the gospel according to John. So there's a a movement and a heightening of Jesus' miracles, which is culminating in raising Lazarus from the dead. And from that point on, John 11 says that the Pharisees began to plot how they might kill Jesus as well as Lazarus. Excuse me, John 12, not John 11. It's earlier in our chapter. And so our passage this morning transitions us from looking at the public ministry of Jesus in John's gospel to his final week. This begins the final week of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ here incarnate on earth. And in this final week, he's going to to teach his disciples in private. Uh, We're going to see an example of that uh, this Thursday evening, Lord willing. He institutes the Lord's Supper before being betrayed. And, of course, he will go to the cross. And we're going to follow the story this morning based on the characters that appear. So four points this morning following the the literary structure of this passage. First, in verse 12, we have the city. The city. Then in verse 13, we have the first crowd. Then in verses 14 through 18, we have the king. And then in verse 19, we have the enemies. So the city, the first crowd, the king, and the enemies. And so first, let's look at the city in verse 12. It is March 29th, A.D. 33. Jesus has come to celebrate what John only calls the feast, but which we know from the other gospel accounts is the feast of unleavened bread which culminates in the Passover. This is one of the great pilgrimage festivals for the Jews. It was an exciting time. The city of Jerusalem was normally about 40,000 people in population, but the historian Josephus says that during this time, the population would balloon up to about 2.5 to 3 million people all gathered in the city of Jerusalem. So it's the city is busy, it's full of excitement, and it's very crowded. Now, this situation made the Romans worried. They always feared revol- uh, revolts and uprising. The Jews had never been content under Roman rule, and they had a history of trying to overthrow the yoke of the Roman Empire and be free of their Control And with such a large contingent of Jews gathered in what is their capital city for one of their most holy feasts and festivals, the Romans took extra care to pay closer attention to what was going on in Jerusalem during this week. They wanted to keep a lid on things and prevent Jerusalem from exploding in revolt like a pressure cooker. The Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, they are also worried because they want to keep a good reputation with Rome. So the Jewish authorities are also worried about a potential uprising and how that would destroy their fragile relationship with their overlords. Now, during his public ministry, Jesus both directly and indirectly has claimed to be not only the Son of God, but also the king, the, the, the promised seed and descendant of David, the true king of Israel. He is the one who is bringing God's kingdom on earth. Jesus has said that, that if I cast out demons, then you know that the kingdom of, if I cast out demons, then you know that the kingdom of God is in your midst. I am the king of which you have been looking for. One pastor puts it this way quote, Jesus could be shrugged off as insignificant as long as he stayed to the little country towns in Israel. But coming to Jerusalem was a bold and dangerous statement, and both Jesus and his disciples knew it, end quote. So Jesus, claiming to be a king, is coming into the capital city where the throne was, coming into Jerusalem, the center of God's kingdom in Jewish thinking. Where the where the royal house as well as the temple stand. And he's coming during a major feast, and there are millions of Jews. And so the, the alarms of both the, the Roman authorities and the Jewish leaders, they're at DEFCON 1. Okay, they are on high alert. And this brings us to the to the crowd in verse 13. The crowd of Jewish pilgrims. They hear that that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign of raising Jesus from the dead. So they took branches of palm trees, back up to verse 13, and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. At this time, the waving of palm branches was a symbol of victory, and it also represented Israel's nationalistic hopes of throwing off the Roman oppression and having the kingdom of David restored over Israel. And so they run out to meet Jesus in a manner that was used when a, when a king or a visiting dignitary was about to enter into a city. A great throng would rush outside of the city to meet this royal and important person And they would accompany him through the gates into the city. And they're waving these signs of victory. And they're waving these signs of of nationalistic hopes. Here is the king who's going to throw off the Roman rulers. Finally. Symbolically, by rushing out to meet Jesus with palm branches, the crowd is saying that Jesus is a king coming into the capital city who's going to restore the Jewish kingdom. They were expecting a national deliverer to reestablish the Davidic kingdom, and their actions portray that they have found, or they believe they have found, this national deliverer in the person of Jesus the Messiah. Not only are they running out to meet him with palm branches, they're also quoting scripture, specifically Psalm 1. 118, the first part of verse 25, and the first part of verse 26. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This psalm was recited every year during the time of the, the monarchy and the United Kingdom in the Old Testament. The, the king would annually re enter the city. And the psalm celebrated God's deliverance of Israel's king, who would be received into Jerusalem by the temple priests the word hosanna is is literally hebrew john has left it untranslated uh, in the greek and it literally means give salvation now it's it's a prayer save us O oh lord and do it now there, there's a an emphasis here there's an urgency here oh please rescue and deliver us And so they're crying out to Jesus for salvation now, and they're thinking they're crying out for national salvation from Rome. Save us. Blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord. The one who comes is uh, messianic. It took on messianic significance in between the Old and New Testament. It referred to the one the Jews of the Old Testament were to look forward to There is coming this Messiah, this messianic figure who is going to come in the name of the Lord and he is going to rescue Israel. He is God's representative. He's coming in the name of Yahweh. And in their shout, if you compare their shout here recorded in John's Gospel to Psalm 118, they add something to it that is not there explicitly although the idea is there implicitly they add this phrase here at the end of verse 13 even the king of israel this is the one that the crowds want to and expect to throw off the roman yoke this is the one that the jewish leaders fear will upset their delicate power their delicate balance of power with rome this is the one the Romans' fear could lead an uprising and stir up revolt and revolution. As someone else puts it, quote, To the crowds, Jesus was the Messiah, the promised king who would establish God's kingdom, destroy the Roman Empire, and allow the Jews to rule the world in prosperity and harmony with God forever, end quote. For three years, they've heard Jesus talk about the kingdom of God. But now, from their perspective, he's finally putting his money where his mouth is and entering into the capital city to take over. That's what's going on in the mind of the crowd. Here is the one who has the power to raise the dead to life. How in the world can Rome stand against such a superpower? Victory is all but guaranteed. This brings us to the king in verses 14 through 18. The first thing John does is he uses Old Testament scripture to show us how the crowd's nationalistic expectations are off. They're they're wrong. Jesus sits down on a young donkey in order to come into Jerusalem, and this is the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. But when you read that chapter in context, in its entirety, the Messiah is described as coming in terms of peace rather than revolt. He comes humble or lowly, riding on a donkey rather than a war horse. One author puts it this way, quote, You can't go to battle on a donkey. You can't destroy the Roman Empire on a donkey. You can't fight your way to the throne, destroying all the enemies in your way. And claim your rightful role as king of Jerusalem if your war horse is a donkey, end quote. And it's not even his donkey. He had to borrow it from somebody. The very next verse, the ones that John doesn't quote here, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10, talks about the removal of the chariot and the removal of the war horse and the removal of the bow and arrow. In fact, that verse says, He shall speak peace to the nations. He shall speak peace to the nations. The king has indeed come, but the crowd was off in their expectations. The king was coming to make peace first before destroying the enemy. So, why didn't the crowds recognize this? Why didn't the crowds stop and say, Wait a minute. Why is our king coming on this donkey? This isn't the the entrance of a of a a great military and conquering warrior. So why didn't the crowds recognize this? It's because this wasn't the first time a king had entered into Jerusalem on a donkey. In 1 Kings chapter 1, David has Solomon anointed king and has Solomon ride on a mule into Jerusalem to declare that Solomon was the true king rather than Adonijah who attempted to usurp the throne. And we know that Solomon had great wisdom and and wealth and he ruled an extremely prosperous and abundant time over Israel. But first, David had to be king and make war and put all the enemies to rest so that Solomon could rule in peace. So the crowd and seeing Jesus on a donkey coming into Jerusalem, they're, they're thinking back that, that here's a new Solomon, but first the David has to come. So, so in this one figure, they're seeing both Solomon and David combined. He's the son of David, the offspring of David, and he's coming like a new Solomon, and he's going to make war. And after war, there will be peace and prosperity for national Israel once again. War comes before peace in the Jewish thinking. But according to God's plan, peace comes before war. Peace comes before war. Jesus comes lowly and humble. Jesus, while receiving the cheers and acclaim of the crowd, knows exactly what is waiting for him at the end of this week. Betrayal, mockery, beating, crucifixion, death. He comes into Jerusalem as a king praised by the crowds. He will be brought out of Jerusalem as a criminal being led to his death sentence. None of this is in the minds of the crowd or even Jesus' disciples. Look at verse 16. His disciples, and John is including himself in here, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. This is why the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24 can be disappointed when they unknowingly and ironically tell the resurrected Jesus, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They're disappointed. In God's economy, He does not work according to human expectations or human plans. It's the wisdom of God to make foolish the wisdom of man. The Jews expected power and glory through military victory. Jesus gained the victory through death, even death on a cross. They had no concept that the cross had to come before the crown. But Jesus knew all of this ahead of time, and he voluntarily entered into Jerusalem. Nobody's put a gun to Jesus's head and saying hey you need to go do this right now he voluntarily entered into Jerusalem knowing what had been appointed for him Jesus as God could have overthrown the Roman Empire with one word uttered from his mouth but that was not his plan in order to show forth the depths of God's love and grace and mercy Jesus voluntarily entered the lion's den, so to speak. This powder keg of circumstances in Jerusalem. And J.C. Ryle says this, quote, He was a willing sufferer in order to procure redemption for a lost and ruined soul. He had undertaken to give his own life as a ransom that we might live forever. And he laid it down at the cross with all the desire of his heart. He did not bleed and suffer and die because he was vanquished by a superior force and could not help himself, but he bled and suffered and died because he loved us and rejoiced to give himself for us as our substitute, end quote. This is the king. Verse 17 tells us of the crowd, that had been with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb. These are the ones who, who witnessed the sign itself. And so they are coming, following behind Jesus. And the second crowd that's been in Jerusalem, they hear what Jesus has done. So the, the news has spread. And so they want to come out and see this king. And the crowd that's following him is bearing witness to him that he's the son of God. This is the king. That's the true expectation that this is the Son of God who's going to suffer and die and on the third day he will rise again. And here comes another crowd coming out to meet him. This is the King of David who's going to throw off the yoke of the Roman oppressors. This brings us to verse 19 where we see the enemies So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Despite their plots, despite their traps and intentions, the Pharisees are helpless as Jesus' popularity continues to grow. J.C. Ryle says that in this verse we have, quote, The language of men baffled, angry, and at their wit's end from vexation, to see their plans defeated, end quote. The Pharisees want the people to be turned against Jesus, not welcoming him as their king, even if their expectations are wrong. Their their praise and rejoicing at the entrance of the king makes the Pharisees' plots and schemes all that more difficult to carry out. How dare these people do this? Don't they know we're trying to arrest him and kill him? And so they can't carry out their... Their plans during the day, so they have to carry out their schemes at night to arrest Jesus. If the people saw them arresting their king during the day, there would most certainly be a revolt. And so they come out secretly against Jesus at night in the garden. And so they are increased in their rage and their anger because they continue to see that their power and their control... And their authority is slipping away over the people. And the people are giving it to this king, to this Jesus. And so to them, it feels like the whole world has gone after Jesus, which is ironic. Since Jesus came to save people from out of the whole world. And so here in this passage, we see that Jesus' person in ministry calls for a response in our life. In this passage, we see three responses. The first crowd has has witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus in verse 17, and they're testifying and bearing witness to Jesus. They are praising He who is the resurrection and the life as the Son of God. This is the response of the Christian proclaiming the grace and mercy of God who sent Jesus to die for sinners while we were still His enemies. I was like the Pharisee, and he has taken me from the Pharisee, and he has given me the spiritual resurrection. He's given me the new birth, a new heart, and raised me from spiritual death unto spiritual life. And so he calls me to testify and to bear witness to him with all of my life, both in word and in deed, that he may be glorified that we may testify of the depths of his love and his grace and his mercy to others. That's one response to the mission and message of Jesus Christ. The second response, verse 18, the crowd that has come out to meet Jesus waving the palm branches, they are curious about this miracle worker and what he has done. They they are confused about his mission and his message. They They are trying to impose their expectations and their timing upon Jesus rather than letting Jesus impose upon them. These are people who may spend some time with Jesus. They may attend church for a while. They are fascinated to study and learn spiritual and religious things, but there's no heart commitment to Jesus. There's no exercise of faith and trust upon Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And so ultimately, they turn and walk away from Jesus because he didn't meet their expectations. Or perhaps the novelty of the miracle worker has worn off, like the, the novelty of a circus that comes to town, and so they move on from Jesus to the, to the next novelty item, the next thing of interest until it, too, no longer holds their interest. And so they just keep on moving from one curiosity to the next. Is this you? Are you like this crowd? Friend, I tell you that Jesus is more than just an intellectual curiosity or a genie in a bottle designed to meet your expectations and your needs. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And as sovereign of the universe he calls for your ultimate and your total and complete allegiance. You're on dangerous ground if you treat Jesus as a as a as a thing of curiosity, as if God was something to be trifled with like a like a cat trifling with a mouse and toying with it until the mouse no longer holds its interest. The Lord God is not a mouse. He is a king. And he will hold you accountable for the way that you respond to the call of Jesus upon your life. Stop treating Jesus as a circus sideshow. Turn from your sin. Cast yourself completely at his mercy and grace. Wash me clean in the blood of the Lamb and have mercy upon me for I am a sinner. And believe that all who come to Jesus, trusting in him, he will turn none away. The third response is of Jesus' enemies, the Pharisees in verse 19. They blaspheme. They ridicule. They're full of envy and anger and jealousy. These are people who, who don't even pretend. They don't want to to get a closer look. They stay at a distance. They want nothing to do with Jesus. They ridicule and they mock the church. They wish Jesus would have stayed dead in the ground because they want to be Lord of their own life. And they hate that Jesus is Lord and demands that they submit to him. They hate it. Just like the Pharisees hated Jesus and were openly antagonistic against him. There are those who respond to Jesus in faith. There are those who respond to Jesus, uh, want a closer look, but they still want to keep their distance. And then there are those who are just openly full of, of poison and animosity towards the church and the things of God. But even this third group is not beyond hope. Paul would have been in this third group he was destroying the church he was imprisoning Christians and then he met the Lord Jesus Christ or rather the Lord Jesus Christ met him on the road to Damascus and he opened his eyes he opened his heart so that the church said the one who used to persecute us now is proclaiming the one that he used to persecute. So it's not beyond hope. Perhaps you have somebody who is like this third group, the Pharisees, in your family or at work, or your neighbor next door, or in your school. Somebody who openly riles and rages against God. too far gone yet because they haven't died and the Lord Jesus Christ hasn't returned yet and so there is still hope that the one who is sovereign over all if it is part of his plan ordained from before the foundations of the earth to open their heart and to give his salvation to them to free them not from the Roman yoke from the yoke of the evil one, Satan, who is currently holding them captive. They're not too far gone. But let me speak to us as Christians here as we bring this to a close. Even as the people of God, we can sometimes be like this crowd here who had the wrong conception and wrong expectations of Jesus' kingship. Let me explain. One, sometimes we end up putting our own expectations upon God, and then we get disappointed when he doesn't meet those expectations. Do we not? We can easily slip into thinking that, that God has to answer our prayers according to the way we pray, so when our prayers are answered differently, we're disappointed with God because he didn't meet our expectation. Perhaps you are disappointed that God hasn't done quote-unquote great things here at Trinity by growing us numerically or being able to buy land and build a building. The expectations you had in first starting this church have not been met, and so you were disappointed with God. Perhaps your marriage or your children did not turn out the way you expected. I thought my husband was a, was a believer. I thought my wife was a believer, but it turns out, he or she is not really. They were just pretending. I, I, I wanted and longed for children and prayed for children but the Lord did not give us children. I expected children but that was never met. My children did not turn out. I raised them in the church. We did family worship together and ne- but now they've gone off on their own and they're not walking with the Lord. It's not what I expected. And so you're Disappointed with God for not meeting your expectations that you placed upon him. We're also surrounded in the church today by a lot of false and unbiblical teaching, which can sometimes seep into our minds and and creep subconsciously into our thinking. False gospel of health and wealth. Perhaps your expectation for God is that, is that, he was going to heal you i've just got to believe passionately enough and long enough and god's going to bring healing to my life or i just have to believe harder and god's going to materially bless me but those expectations have never been realized and you grow disappointed with the lord i prayed so hard to pray in tongues or to have the gift of healing or the gift of prophecy we've been suckered into the charismatic movements and those those prayers have never been answered you've been disappointed that you didn't get that second blessing that they teach about and so god did not meet your expectations and you're disappointed with him even though those are unbiblical expectations are we can be suckered into the modern seeker-sensitive movement and the the modern contemporary evangelical church where where you go to church to receive some sort of emotional high. It's all about getting your batteries recharged. Worship is about you rather than about God. And so you walk away disappointed when you don't leave church with that emotional high, with that super spiritual feeling, quote-unquote. Your batteries don't feel recharged, and so frustration sets in. Why isn't God working like I expect him to work? And so we walk into situations, we encounter situations, we live our lives and go through major life events. We walk into the church with conscious and unconscious expectations on God, and we get disappointed when those expectations are not realized. The answer to this is that we are to let Scripture, the very Word of God, set our expectations. Our expectations are to be biblically grounded, not grounded in our emotions or our desires or what we want, but in what God desires and what God wants. So that's one way we can be like the crowds. A second way is sometimes we get our timing off compared to God's timing. Jesus is going to come back and make war one day. The crowd just wanted it sooner than God had planned. Over and over in Scripture, we are told to wait for and to wait on the Lord, but instead we grow impatient with God's timing, and so we try to take matters into our own hands. Earlier in John's Gospel, the people tried to take Jesus and make him their king in the sense of this national and military ruler early on in his ministry. We see in scripture that disaster comes when we get our timing off compared to God's. Abraham grew impatient for the child of promise and so went into Hagar and bore Ishmael. Saul grew impatient with Samuel and went ahead and offered sacrifices and the kingdom was taken away from him. The people of Israel grew impatient with Moses on Mount Sinai and so they made a golden calf and worshipped it. Moses grew impatient with the grumbling and complaining of the people, and so he struck the rock instead of speaking to it. And as a result, he did not get to enter the promised land. When we grow impatient with God's timing and try to force him to act on our timetable, we get ourselves into very messy and sinful situations. In both cases, when we set expectations on God, When we grow impatient with God, our sinful nature is to take God off the throne and put ourselves on the throne and to make God bow to our demands. We try to make God submit to us when we are called to submit to God. And then finally, we are like the crowd because we put our hopes in the here and now The crowd had no concept of the spiritual nature of Christ's kingdom and that his kingdom is not of this world and therefore does not operate like the kingdoms of this world. We want God's kingdom. We want it in the here and now, and we want it to look like what we want it to look like. The prosperity gospel heresy takes the promises of the new heavens and the new earth and the reality of what will be true at the consummation of time and tries to make them fit in the here and now. They don't want the wealth of the nations that is promised in the new heavens and the new earth. They want the wealth now. The sinless perfectionism that is found in Wesleyan circles takes what will be true of us in the age to come and tries to make it a reality of this intermediate age, this age that is going to pass away. Christians attempt to create a utopian society here on earth. We suddenly think that everything will be okay if we can just get the right president in office and get the right laws enacted and then this will truly be a Christian nation again. My friend, until Christ comes back, there's going to be sin. All is not going to be well until Christ returns and overthrows the world and the devil and makes all things new. And so until then, our hope is set on things above not on the things here below. Our hope is in Christ who is seated on David's throne as king, seated on the throne in the heavens and who will one day return as king and bring that ultimate peace by overthrowing and destroying the enemies, casting them into the lake of fire that is reserved for them and bringing the new heavens, the new earth and the new Jerusalem with him heaven and earth meet and oh what a glorious day that is going to be and that will be the day that our hearts cry out hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord even the king of israel amen and amen let us pray